Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Brett, Ed, Fran, Johnny, Matt and Paul, helping you to build more muscle and to lose weight with a hint of banter and a dash of humour. Enjoy this week's episode. Johnny, you good? Yeah, it's going dry. <laughs> That's clearly how it's going to start because I haven't recorded already. So, <laughs> um, Well, I'll just go with that then. So <laughs> welcome to the, the Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. This is Brett, obviously, uh, as there is every week. Today we have a, another uh, smashing guest, a returning guest. So um, I think you might... People know who it is because I've seen the title of the podcast. But anyway, um, I think you might be the only... Per- no, second person to return, I think. Wow. I feel honoured. The first, cool. the first one is a former slash, I think... Um, I say former client. I don't know if he still has a dabble, but Dan was the only other person to be on twice. Dan Mack. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I still coach Dan. Yeah. Uh, as a just less hands-on now, he can. Uh, he's uh, a bit more grown up now. Yeah, well, <laughs> now he's married. I th- so I think you can call him grown up. He's a he's a, he's a big lad. Um, yeah, he's very big. Yeah, he's a big, big lad. Dan. He's a bit chunky at the minute, and I keep telling that, and he doesn't <laughs> like it when I keep calling him chunky. <laughs> Uh, um, so yeah I think obviously second returning guest so thank you for coming on appreciate it no my pleasure and uh, it's always good to chat to you guys and well I haven't chatted to Johnny before but it'll be good to chat no way you won't understand him (laughs) you won't understand him well I say you might have the experience of trying to decipher Pascal all the time so uh, see if it works with the Welsh wonder (laughs) hello boy all go on Johnny see something not that bad am I you're pretty bad sometimes (laughs) <laughs> like, if I speak real fast then yeah it can be really good yeah, bad really or good or bad whichever way you look at it sometimes <laughs> I have to sit there and go what did he say and they just I do literally sometimes go nod and smile or I'll obviously bite the bullet and ask you to repeat it but ah. um, I'm going to make it sound better can I say that again no I'm joking, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> so you got you got you immediately um, so Without further ado, let's not waste too much of Steve's time because obviously he's kindly dedicated or um, given us some time of his. Um, for those that haven't listened to the first episode or uh, anything you want people to kind of know that's happened since you're last on, do you want to give a little bit about yourself or you know just update people who you are, what you're kind of focusing on at the minute? Cool. Yeah, I don't think there's necessarily anything new since the last time, I'm not sure, um, but I am kind of the founder of Revive Stronger, which is a online coaching company also content creator we kind of push out uh, podcasts as well i'm fortunate enough to interview some of like the leading industry experts which is fantastic um but that's that's pretty much all we've kind of been throwing some more seminars here or there we're very centered around physique development so like fat loss muscle gain competitors in like bikini or uh, bodybuilding so yeah just more of the same has been going down and i've just been, i don't know where i was when i'd last competed or if i had competed when i last came on but I'm well and truly like masked out almost, so that's where I'm at. I think from you personally, and I, I could get it completely wrong, but I don't think it was far off the shaven head moment. So no, must, I've just you could rid been, of the beard. Yeah, no, you, you couldn't have been far off competing then. I think. Yeah, I either had just competed or had like was near to taking it, but I think I, I, it was quite long, and then I just decided to shave it all off. So that was probably post show. Yeah. I was probably still pretty skinny though. <laughs> Well, you're not looking too skinny nowadays, mate. You're looking obviously. You get lots of compliments. Call me on, fat now. Mm, <laughs> I was going to use the word chonky again. I'm joking. You're, what, where are you at the moment in terms of your? Because you because you were massing. Are you finished massing now? Are you? 
Unfortunately, I have two more. I'm going to do two more mesocycles, so two more like just over two months of that, and then I'll enter into like preparation for 2020 prep probably. Um, so do a big like diet before the diet, take off like 10% of my body weight, get down to maybe 180 pounds, and then that will start. I'll maintain that for a period of time and then dig into yeah disgusting condition hopefully so just obviously just remind everyone about um obviously any potential assistance that you're using or doing no, I'm, joking. I'm joking your own, creatine's your, pretty strong <laughs> your own natural right let's put it out there um you you tell as soon as you see me like shredded like okay this guy's like 160 pounds <laughs> it's like this isn't impressive he's 510 this is quite light <laughs> i think my thing is that most people in in like i suppose our world i mean we've got a few kind of followers that are in like the physique realm but most of them are general pop so they might not really yeah. even realize what 160 pounds um on like stage weight would would look like anyway or even if it's naturally possible or or alternatively a lot of them wouldn't even know that phil heath's on drugs so yeah might, don't sue me for saying that but i think it's pretty obvious <laughs> so yeah when you're like 20 storm <laughs> you probably are new i would think so like Sometimes. It's like, well, Michael, Michael, who in the natural? It's not yeah. the twenty stone or without or something for me. He's natural, <laughs> isn't he? Apparently so. This is what I mean, though. But you can show people pictures of those individuals or individuals like you know what we talked about, and there are many general population people that would not have the Scooby. Like, I remember watching a, the Ronnie Coleman documentary on Netflix, and honestly, the people I was watching with. None of them kind of even insinuated or even thought at any moment that, oh, is he on drugs? It's like, he might have been taking a few, I think. You know, you'd have seen the guy. Like, I don't, I can't remember, I don't know how tall Ronnie Coleman was, but obviously to be that tall and that uh, muscle, or carry that much muscle, or be that wide, I think you've got to be using something. Either you've just got the best genetics that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's even down to, I mean, even I, for a while, it was only in like, I don't know, last five years or something that I realized people in the Olympics might be taking things. And then that's like mind blown because that's even drug tested, uh -huh. whereas these guys aren't even drug tested. So it's kind of like, well, of course they're going to like, yeah. there's just no way they can get to that size. No, absolutely not. We, we've had this conversation many a time around people's understanding. And this obviously isn't the topic of the podcast when we were listening, but um, what we're talking about, it's interesting chat. I think people don't understand the use of drugs in 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 all sports and you know even kind of in the um personal world you know pe people that just want to look better it's unreal the amount of people that are, are using some type of assistance to to look better or you know perform better um all you've got to do is look at the amount of ufc fighters that get caught you've got the kind of the russian uh, scandal obviously in soji olympics and oh it's just mad really the amount of like that goes on i kind of feel like you'd be more accurate thinking everyone's using than you would be nobody that might be the case, sadly. Yeah. Even professional footballers, I'd imagine most people are doing something. The thing is, when there's money involved, that's the road it's going to go down, isn't it? People do extremes, yeah. I mean, it's, it's all like locker room talk in that, you know, you can imagine if you're in a high-level sport and you're in a locker room, someone thinks you're half-decent, someone just will take you to a side in a locker room and just say, have you thought about this? And it's that, it's that simple, because people will invest in people that they think can get to the top of the game. Yeah. And I can imagine it happens in football and all manner of sports all the time. But I think people forget that the top guys and girls would always be the top guys or girls if the playing field was always level, geared up or not geared up. They'd always Ronnie Coleman would probably would have been the best because the man is still a giant, even though his spine is like in six pieces. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Still oh. a lump that most people will never get to. You know what I mean? 
I think Steve's nodding because he doesn't understand what you just said. <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> I was, I was. It makes me think of. Um, I think you can Google it probably, where um, it's like Ronnie Coleman up to the point of which before he started taking anything, and uh, you can do that for quite a few of the kind of like Kai Green and stuff, and they're like they blow most natural bodybuilders out of the water. So I completely agree with Johnny. Like they're the elite of the elite. Even without the drug use, probably they'd still be at the top. It just mm -hmm. maybe wouldn't be as exciting as it is at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, case in point would easily be, I'm sure if I used any type of assistance, I'd probably still have the same to do now. So <laughs> 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 that's probably how bad it is. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to mope on my genetics. They're very bang average and it just is what it is. But... I'm working on my body confidence and self-love, and that's what matters. So, um, and that is definitely a topic for another day. Um, <laughs> shall we? So, we obviously, Steve, I want to get you back on because we we want to talk about something we've been talking about, you know, within our business and with, with individuals as well. Quite recently, um, quite a fair, a fair amount, kind of, and there's a lot going out in social media and a lot of chat around kind of like the effective reps uh, yep. concept, um, and also kind of trained to failure, trained to reps and reserve. And some of these, I suppose, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not the right word. Basically, some of these concepts people may not understand or know what they mean. So um, I don't know whether like the first thing we want to just touch on, because we obviously want to speak to it, is just kind of briefly start on, I guess, progressive overload, because we a lot of people might not even know what progressive overload is. Okay. A lot of the kind of people that we either work with, when you first start working with them, they don't, they've never really trained in the gym. They've not. Um, really understood what a, a good resistance program looks like and when you speak to them and use maybe a term like that's the word before term um progressive overload you're kind of like oh i don't even know what that means so yeah. do you want to kind of give your your opinion on what it is and kind of maybe some methods cool yeah absolutely um i think overload is kind of a term that you need to define first of all probably and that's a stressor to the body so it has to be something that the body is going to find stressful it has to be something that the body is uncomfortable with um, it has to be something that is going to make a stress response which will lead to adaptations and growth in future um, so overload kind of has to happen and then we want progression upon that overload so essentially making stuff hard and then harder um, over time to create adaptations to continue happening so i like to dumb it down essentially with like progressive overload is harder like you have to make it somehow harder um you can be specific in how you make it harder for like muscle growth because you can make things harder by like don't know doing silly isometrics for ages or like holding your breath or something like that like that's not that's not harder in the specificity for kind of hypertrophy um, and the people I work with are mostly after kind of muscle growth or maybe strength um, and in those kind of contexts generally progressive overload would come from maybe adding extra repetitions um, it might come from adding extra load on the bar or total kind of work so maybe you add a set those tend to be the main ways to progressively overload but you can argue there's tempo there's um, form improvement um, there's increased range of motion but generally those probably maybe a static for a lot of people hopefully you have great form hopefully you've picked a movement and you're sticking to that range of motion so then it for the most part comes from in my experience reps um, load or adding kind of sets or a combination of all of those um, that could quite possibly happen as well yeah i think with some of the people we work with because they're new to training like the form aspect is something that we probably focus on quite a lot because yeah. we probably look at that before we start adding load for a lot of people purely because they probably haven't got the form down, they haven't got the experience. I mean, obviously, as you know, weightlifting or any type of resistance training is like a skill in itself. 
and it's really hard to develop it if you don't dedicate some time to doing it and um that's probably one of the metrics that we actually probably change quite or, or some change look at and and kind of heart enhance more than some of the other ones probably just, certainly to start with anyway with a lot of people yeah i think that's that's foundation stuff that's stuff that has to be put in place and you don't want to be like at least in my experience and this is what happened to me and i think happens to a lot of people where you don't focus on technique you don't focus on any form or anything like that you just keep adding load and to the point at which you keep decreasing like range of motion you use more momentum and you injure yourself and then you're like shit i really need to focus on form and technique and then you learn after you've been injured which is not the best way to go about it so i definitely agree for beginners they don't need to worry too much about any of these other things they just need to focus on kind of perfecting that technique because for them uh, overload is just doing anything mm-hmm. like you you could grow your quads just by cycling if you've never like done any sort of resistance training or any like cycling like it's an overload to you so it won't be an overload for long which is where the progression comes and making it harder um, but completely agree technique is super important and it's something you have to keep an eye on throughout your training career it's still something i'm like i film myself regularly because I'm, i don't want it to my ego to get out of in the way of me or anything like that so yeah super important that, that's obviously a really good point and i've something that i suppose i've i personally struggle with but also with clients in in that that almost like you say self-checking um like your own form and it's just almost like you're not cheating yourself it's easy to sometimes just let things slip i think so my personal experience where you just kind of slightly maybe cut a range of motion short or um you might dive bomb into a squat or something that basically just kind of because it's hard you almost it feels a bit like a reflex but you naturally just almost try to cut corners sometimes it's very difficult to check yourself because sometimes you can i found that you can go weeks sometimes go by we suddenly think hang on a minute I've kind of been overloading by adding, you know, reps or or load or whatever. But actually, am I really keeping that form the same, or have I just cheated myself? Do you find that is the case as well? Yeah, I think that can quite easily happen, um, and it's why one of the things I really like to do use that I don't think that many people maybe are hugely keen on, but I like really obvious like start and end points to lifts. So like a squat, always just go to your full depth and come to the top. Like don't. Like if you're powerlifting, sure, you might be able to cut range and just go kind of um, hit below knee crease and that's kind of fine for your sport. But when we're not talking in that context, like just go all the way down and come all the way up. Don't try and like, I don't know, people um, try and maybe cut like a dumbbell bench press. I'm very a big fan of if you can comfortably like come down, touch the chest, then come to the top. There you've got like a start and end point very, very clear or like a bent over row like or a deadlift, like start from the bottom and then come all the way to the top go to the bottom again, like clear start and end points. That kind of can keep you quite um, sane with it um, and keep you on point, but completely true. Like it's so easy to just keep overloading and eventually you're like, you're touching your chest and then you're like an inch off, two inches off, three inches off. And then you're like, okay, this is not going how I wanted it to go. No, no. There's certain exercises where it's really obvious and somewhere it's less obvious, obviously. But um, I think you do, it's, it's almost key or like it's really important to make sure you just keep yourself honest my experience i find got, i gotta check i don't put on peddly rows when you're adding weight do you think oh you can feel yourself coming up with a third i think right let's drop it back a little bit i find that's the hardest one for me peddly rows keeping your form bang on when you're trying to increase the load i find difficult but i could really think about it yeah rowing movements i think pulling movements are one of the ones like it's kind of rare to see someone doing a nice 
row like a, a dumbbell row or a barbell row and it's quite often it's like hips are coming in and it's like just jerking motion it's like uh, i look back at i've got even youtube videos where i would do like vlogs when i was like i don't know 18 years old and i was filming myself and i look at my penlay rows and i'm like this is just <laughs> this is horrendous but it, it it shows how far you can come but yeah it's, it's so easy for that to get out of the way like because the jerking and oh yeah super easy I found it was one of Ronnie Coleman's evenings when one of, one of, the, one of those came out. You'd see everybody in the gym partial repping everything because he partial reps everything. So he's like chest and he's like there. You get little moves around him. And you've seen his squat. He's in the hole and he'd be soon come up and oh, a couple of inches. You'd see everybody used to do that and think, oh, probably not the best idea really for him like Ronnie. He's Jack though. <laughs> yeah. It's always that what people say. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's also like in a wheelchair, but <laughs> he is now. Yeah, that's that's terrible. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. Um, I suppose. I mean, there's a place for partial reps in some programs at some points. I guess anyone can justify use them at some point. I guess if hypertrophy is your, as in muscle gain, is your goal, probably less so. Yeah, I think generally it's known that a fuller range of motion provides more hypertrophy. So. Partials, I think, like you said, if you can make a real justification and you can explain your rationale, cool. But if you, if someone asks you, like, why are you doing that rack pull? You're like, no, it's fucking heavy. Yeah. This is probably not good enough. No. You probably need to have a better reason than that. Maybe you are like, you can't go deeper because you have an injury or something. Cool, that's fine. But if it's just because it's heavy, it's probably not the, the the real kind of answer that I'm looking for. No, no, for sure. I mean, one of the easiest ones we've often used, like if you're a sprinter and you might do a half rep squat or something because obviously yeah. when you're running you're never really going to a parallel um depth so like if you don't need strength in that range then fine um but yeah i think obviously most of our listeners aren't sprinters i think most of them will probably just want bigger quads or look a bit better legs or, or whatever so um yeah um i get like i suppose is there while we're on that kind of almost subject is is there what are your thoughts on, and I haven't prepped you for this, all right, because obviously you haven't had the question for this part, but what are your thoughts on like constant tension versus, because obviously Johnny said about half reps and like you used the example of the bench press. I was trying to think like, what are your thoughts on constant tension versus maybe like a lockout, which might provide some rest between reps, that type of stuff? Cool. Yeah, I think a lot of people ended up liking the constant tension because it was kind of that time under tension, the more time under tension, the more growth. And there's certainly some kind of credence to time under tension and kind of volume and intensity and making sure that you're having sufficient amount of that. I tend to find they kind of equate themselves um, because by keeping your kind of not locking out or whatever it might be like that, you accumulate fatigue quicker. And so you can't generally do as kind of much when you're doing that. Whereas when you lock out, you kind of you're not under tension in that time that you're locked out, but then you're doing an extra rep. So maybe you get some extra reps, but you have some time that's not under tension within that lift. So generally, I'm kind of like, just lift it, either way, like as long as it's not silly, um, it can both can work fa fairly equally. Um, I don't really have much more than that. I tend to not kind of keep stuff under tension unless I'm purposely trying to accumulate like metabolites or a pump or something like that. I tend to allow the kind of lift to lock out. Mm -hmm. 
Sure, that's your, your views align. <clears throat> Excuse me, completely mine. Probably because obviously we're influenced by similar people, I guess. But yeah, yeah, smart people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've had this argument before. Exactly what you just said, and like, my, I, I always think, well, they kind of work themselves out. If anything, it's I'd probably say some of the constant tension stuff, depending upon the type of exercise, could just be a bit unsafe. Like if you're not going to be squatting, trying to do constant tension on squats, say, because you know, once you kind of get too painful and form starts to break down for it, you're then probably cutting yourself short to keep it safe. In my yeah. opinion, but yeah, I mean, on squats up at the top, you can kind of have a breather, kind of get your technique back in place, mm. especially when you're squatting quite heavy. I think I'd struggle to squat heavy and keep like under tension, and maybe even for some lifts, you miss out on maybe a bit of range of motion by not locking out, like with the triceps on the bench press, locking out that's where they kind of get used the most. So, um, yeah, you could even argue that, but yeah, I think our thoughts align. Johnny, you got any thoughts on that? You're very quiet. No, I'm in, I'm in agreement there. Good. That's because Johnny, Johnny's as big a fan of Dr. Mike as you are. He does like Oh, really? It. But I think it's more because he likes his rants. They are good. <laughs> I just get to smile and like, this is brilliant. <laughs> He's always got good at that. He always describes things as some mental way to get there with all done. He makes it so easy. You think, oh, I don't. That's easy. It's He's like, the king of analogies. Yeah. How does he do it on the spot like that? But he's a doctor and superintendent. Well, he's obviously um, well versed in in doing it a lot. So the thing is, he's the ideal guy to learn from because he appeals to the bros because he's massive, but he also appeals to the science crew because he's got a PhD. So he's got the best of both, isn't he? Because how often you hear, or he doesn't know he's talking about because he's not twenty-two stone, Mister Olympia, or not a listen who listen to you know the gym, just. Of that's another topic that's going around seems to be going around a lot of the industry anyway around like you are your own business card and whether people should listen to you like people wouldn't listen to me because they look at me and think he's some tiny little dude who don't know anything about resistance training or growing muscle but you know look at, look at pro footballers and managers Ronaldo or Messi people manage them and they're the best players in the world they don't think they expect somebody else to be as good as them because they're not are they no well, and in the same way, Usain, Usain Bolt's trainer isn't Usain Bolt, so it's kind of like, well, would should Usain Bolt not listen to his training then because he can run faster than him? So. I think I agree. It's it's something that always comes around, and um, unfortunately, like it's, I guess it's the sex sells. So people just look at the person and they're like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to get programmed by you because you're in great shape. And it's I think it's particularly bad within like the female market, maybe. Because now that's growing and then there's just girls who have like genetically just massive glutes and you see them doing all this like fluff stuff and it's like that's not going to work for the majority of females um, but they don't want to listen because no. they have the great glutes and they don't know any better at the moment at least. Do, they haven't do, heard Brett. <laughs> do, yeah. do, you, do you find like um, or has it ever crossed your mind that you obviously compete in yourself or like Pascal and I can obviously compete and you know like in, within your company say that it's advantageous to you because obviously you can kind of show it off that you're kind of practicing what you preach or you know you've got the images that are, like you say sexy that people are going to look at and think oh yeah I want to be coached by them do you find that helps or does that ever really cross your mind yeah so definitely um I think even me getting into online coaching was because I competed like that was a big push because people saw me getting it, it was just in my local gym that I ended up coaching people online within that gym but they even saw me then kind of getting in shape and getting really lean, leaner than anyone else was in the gym. 
and that's what sold them. It wasn't my intelligence or anything like that. It was just he got shredded. Like he must know what he's doing. Mm. Uh, so it definitely helped springboard the business. And then I think to draw competitors in, I think if you do well, it draws them in. Like if I was to win a British final or if I was a pro, it would look good and it would draw more people in. Um, I think it's an unfortunate part of the business. And I think also to keep my feet wet in the game almost to compete every few years is probably if I want to coach bodybuilders and we want to coach bodybuilders as a, as a group, it's something I need to do mm. from a marketing perspective. But also I personally feel like I need to do it from a just learning perspective and keeping my kind of a game there in terms of um, putting myself in my client's shoes. So when I do take people to show, I still remember how shit it really is um, and the weird things that you do and have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis so yeah unfortunately um, I do think it's definitely a bonus if you've competed before to then take someone to stage because there are just some things that you it's like if you've never had like a nosebleed bleed before or something you can kind of be told what a nosebleed is like but it is not until you've had that kind of blood gushing out your nose that you're like oh my gosh that's what it feels like that's horrid um so yeah it's kind of one of those that's a funny analogy to use a nosebleed i don't know what made me say that <laughs> well it, it 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 served the purpose so um no they, they to be fair it's like those questions weren't planned but obviously it was quite useful to understand or hear your, your thoughts about it because I, I i kind of i obviously we know that you can be incredibly knowledgeable incredibly great at um aligned education with other people but not practice stuff yourself like it's plenty of overweight pts it's plenty of overweight nutritionists and you think to yourself well surely they should practice what they preach but some of the most intelligent people that know the most stuff don't doesn't they don't they don't make intelligent decisions because obviously i guess we do a lot of stuff like emotionally and, and psychologically yeah. rather than just what we know is the right or, or wrong thing and i think sometimes that it's the same with the industry like unfortunately like you say there's sex sales and people kind of do think people are their own business card and they should look at it and think, well, I expect my PT to be shredded because how can I trust someone that's not themselves? And it is a sad reality of it. But um, on the flip side is we do have to play to it a bit because we do know. It's a bit like, the, like to use an analogy, it's like when people use the term clean eating. Like everyone says, we know we hate clean eating. Like you should never use that. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't kind of um, align morals almost with foods. But people know what it means. So you kind of have to just go with it because if you don't use it or you try and use, you know, you try and be pedantic almost to a certain extent, then you end up kind of like um, detrimenting yourself because you, you refuse to use that term, say, as an example. So, Yeah, it's something I recently spoke to. I know you know uh, Ben Escrow and DeNovo Nutrition. I recently had him on the podcast and was speaking to him about like the sex sales aspect of marketing for like pre-workouts for pre-workouts it gets ridiculous like it's not even relevant to the pre-workout some of the flashy images they have on these containers but it it works so it's kind of like he was saying how they're trying to find a bit of a middle ground to kind of you draw people in and then you can kind of educate them um and i think that's something we can do as well as like personal trainers yeah. uh so long yeah it, it's tricky though it's really tricky that's probably what you've done really well and as you say you've you've you may be started by by drawing people with the flashy like physique pictures of your shows and stuff but people stay around now for the content and obviously the education you do so yeah i think you're right i just to add like pascal always says to me um shit only sells once so i just think that always rings true that is true that is true um Cool. So just get, getting back to obviously like the progressive overload and how kind of people can improve their training. Um, two things that are around at the moment uh, in terms of protocols for your programming. So reps and reserve and failure. There's a bit of debate around 
whether what's better basically for and let's just go with hypertrophy as the the outcome what's better for hypertrophy yeah. um do you want to kind of talk about reps and reserve what it is um i think it's self-explanatory what trained to failure means but you can probably give what your view on what you think failure okay. actually is johnny's definitely got a view johnny thinks people don't train anywhere near to failure enough or not that you don't train to failure enough but don't know what failure is yeah <laughs> so um i don't know if you want to touch on that Cool. Yeah, definitely. So um, reps and reserve is also like it's like it says it is what it says on the tin. Um, it's how many reps you have or clean, like good form technique um, reps you have left in the tank, essentially. So if you're like five, you have five good reps left. If you have one, you only had one really good, but incredibly tough rep left. If you had naught, then you couldn't have performed another rep with good technique. Um, it would have been poor technique and form would have broken down. And essentially, failure is a bit of a murky ground, but I'd say that kind of like, I don't like people to go past naught reps in reserve on big compound lifts for sure. Um, even naught reps in reserve for me, for someone who's very strong, is a scary place to be. Um, I'd prefer them to leave one. Can I just stop you when by past naught? Because I suppose people might think logically, how can you go past zero? Mm. So yeah, it's you can do it. Um, it could be someone could assist you with the lift. Um, like that's a one way to go past it. So if you yeah, they're just helping you move the weight. Essentially, they're taking some of the load, which you see sometimes with the bros doing. Um, and that has maybe a place in some areas, and I can see some rationale behind that in some unique cases. And then other ways is like yeah, using momentum. So maybe you're rowing and like you started horizontal to the ground and now you're doing reps that are like above horizontal to the ground so you've shortened your range of motion made the lift easier um or like bicep curling now you, you're kind of using a bit of swing to get that weight up i'd say that's kind of where you're past naught reps in reserve and you're kind of going to a zone of where i would say um something i like is the stimulus to fatigue ratio i'd say the stimulus that you're getting from each rep there isn't necessarily that great because now you're kind of using momentum or you've shortened your range of motion and now the fatigue though is fairly high because neurologically you've, you've gone past failure so that's quite taxing on the body and then you're obviously using energy so it's something i tend to avoid going to that point um so yeah that's kind of reps and reserve and then failure training i don't know if you want me to go into like anything more on for hypertrophy um well i think maybe just describe what failure is because obviously it okay. sounds it sounds logical as in you fail but I mean, you kind of touched on a bit on reps and reserve in terms of like good reps, but I suppose like, and maybe this is something to kind of include with it as well, because I don't know the answer to this, but when people talk about like the research within um, like training protocols and they talk about when maybe participants were put to failure, I never really know, because I'm not a researcher yeah. and obviously I never have been, whether it's what type of failure we can really kind of assume they're doing and whether there yep. is anything standardized. I don't know if you know the answer or if anyone's ever talked to you about it before, but um, in terms of like, does someone go to mechanical failure or do they go to physical failure or, you know, that type of thing? So I really wanted to make a joke. <laughs> like the person just falls on the ground and dies. Like this is fake. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> um, but I, I laugh out loud just trying to say it with a straight face. So I think um, from what I know, the standardized way, um, but I think there might have been some differences in some research, but most of it is concentric failure. So that's like you're coming up and then you're just like you're trying to bench press the bar up and then someone has to take it off you or you're squatting up and then you fall down into the rack. That tends to be kind of concentric failure seems to be the definition by the researchers. And I think okay. that probably makes most sense. And yeah. uh, that's kind of why I find it to be risky on the big compound lifts, especially something like a deadlift. Um, doing something like that like injuries are just so easy to get on those sort of lists squats again bench press again 
probably a good idea to get a spotter if you're attempting to go near to failure on kind of a bench press or a squat and then no one can sp- like spot you on a deadlift so that can be quite deadly whereas like a bicep curl you drop the weight even dumbbell bench pressing potentially like you just you come you push up and you're like i can't get it put it to your side just make sure no one's standing close to you and you don't like chuck them at people um so yeah that that's failure i think okay so in terms of like applying them then um just to pose the question right i was gonna say what is the difference between the two and then kind of what are your preferences for kind of methods in whatever context you want whatever scenarios you want cool so i think at the moment what we've seen within literature which is based mostly on novice trainees very little on advanced trainees it's found that for substantial hypertrophy anything less than five reps in reserve tends to provide a hypertrophic stimulus you can grow from less than five reps uh, in reserve so like this is piss easy reps for less than five, like six reps in reserve but a, a novice can grow from that it's a stress it's an overload for them but for anyone who's relatively well trained if you've got more than five reps in reserve you're simply not working hard enough it's not overloading um, but practically i think for anyone who's like intermediate and beyond if you're leaving more than like four reps in reserve it's just whether or not you are better spending time training harder than that. It's probably a bit too light. And also in the literature, it's also been shown that actually assessing reps and reserve is harder um, the more you are away from failure. Uh, and for more novice trainees, it's also harder. And for higher repetition work, it's also harder. So that kind of puts us into a position where um, for many individuals, it can be tough to assess like even like four reps in reserve can be difficult. So I think a workable range for most of the people I at least work with tends to be three to four up to failure. Um, and, and that's where I tend to work within because all of that can provide a good stimulus for hypertrophy um, and failure in itself is probably not something you want to be around all the time because it's very fatiguing. Studies again have shown that people who train in failure consistently they fail to produce as much volume as other kind of groups who maybe leave a couple of reps in reserve and that cuts the hypertrophy short. And what we know from at the moment, the literature is indicating that we have to hit a minimum threshold for intensity. So relative intensity in terms of like reps in reserve and also absolute intensity. So um, percentage of one rep max, essentially, as long as you've met both those requirements, you have ticked off the box for intensity. Then it depends on how much kind of volume you're doing. And it seems as though more volume you're doing, the more you're going to grow so long as you can recover from that. And that's a big caveat, like so long as you're recovering, because people don't hear that and they're like, I'm just going to do all the fucking volume. It's just not a good idea. Um, They're going to leave themselves in a bad position. So I then work within this. I kind of think, okay, so at the start of my hypertrophy mesocycles, I like to people start with kind of the minimum. Um, Mike has called this like the minimum effective volume but in terms of the volume landmarks start there. And then this is overload. Um, and this is the minimum overload to provide the results we want. And then every week on, I am progressing that, making it harder. And I'm moving then from minimum effective volume through maximal adaptive volume. So this is the best volume for growth, essentially, because it's the most volume you can do and adapt from and get better to. And eventually, you're going to hit a wall because fatigue builds up week to week. You're going to hit your max recoverable volume. So this is the most volume you can do and recover from. So you can't beat this the next week. You can maybe repeat it. So at this point, I would then deload and recycle. Um, so I tend to start a mesocycle at three to four from failure. 
And then every week they're either adding like repetitions or they're adding load. And this tends to see their reps and reserve drop down. Um, some people who are new to reps and reserve either go too hard or too easy this first week. Um, I've seen it both ways. I've seen people kind of end up training it. Like I look at their videos they're sending in to me, which I think is really important um, when I bring on a new person who's been training, uh, even if they're relatively well trained. And I look at it, I'm like, you were like grinding out those last two reps. Like there's no way that was like three to four reps in reserve. It should just be a slowdown, maybe a bar speed. And then after a couple of weeks, they're already hitting a wall, they're regressing. And so we have to deload earlier than planned. And then other people, I'm like, you didn't even look like you were like wincing at all. Like it just didn't look hard whatsoever. And so they end up maybe training for like eight weeks because in reality, the first week they're training like six reps in reserve. But because we're progressing every single week, making things harder, eventually they hit that failure point because inevitable. Um, they can't just keep um, going forever without hitting that point. So that's how I tend to do it. Um, and after like a mesocycle or two of utilizing that sort of approach, people tend to have the reps reserve more or less down um, via recording it, experiencing it, um, and now logbooking it. So they know where failure was in that final week. And so they can work backwards from that. Say if they had a 10 rep max, they can work four reps back and know that that is probably a four rep and reserve. So that's how I tend to approach rep and reserve training for kind of hypertrophy. So you don't really ever, well, you don't advise or guide anyone to train to failure more often. You kind of you just, just, that's kind of like a, a very general protocol you use, tend to work from an RAR up to towards failure at the end of a mesocycle where you overreach and then deload and go, yeah? Yeah, it's very rare. I have had, um, I've actually got a client at the moment who has trained to failure his entire training career. Um, and actually he's two weeks in and he said this was the first week he's logged progression and not logged regression within his logbook because he logbooks everything as well. Like he's a big fan of Jordan Peters and he trained to failure all the time. And uh, yeah, he eventually was like, I just know it's, I, I love it. I'm kind of addicted to training failure, but it's not doing anything for me. Um, so yeah, for him, he was like, I can't train three to four reps in reserve. I just feel like I'm not going to be able to do that. So we started off at two reps in reserve and then basically going to see how long we can eke out this progression. And over a while, over a while, like try and sell him on keeping a bit back. Um, that tends to be the hardest thing that I found with people is they tend to push themselves too hard and then they're kind of screwed up already um, and they can't kind of accumulate for as long as I'd like them to. I was going to say, I mean, Johnny had this question, but I don't know if you want to ask it, Johnny, or whether you want me to, but about training to failure more often. What was the question? What, what did I ask? I'll ask it. Yeah. Uh, basically, <laughs> did, for, for, for training to failure too frequently, what do you think are like the potential outcomes, either positive or negative? Well, and I, cool. I'll probably, I'll insinuate a bit by saying too frequently, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I think, I mean, failure training, it's really, really fatiguing um so that's the main problem with it in terms of the stimulation to fatigue uh, ratio which is like a i guess it's a not hypothesis either and it's just like an idea the stimulus right, to fatigue right. ratio it's not like it's not like a definite thing that we know has been studied but from looking at the literature it seems probably two reps reserve tends to provide almost as much stimulus as a failure like set on a set by set basis but we all know when you leave two reps in reserve versus going to all out failure one's way more fatiguing than the other um, and you tend to be able to repeat performance better on subsequent sets potentially do more volume overall when you don't take it to failure all the time so i think the problem with maybe training to failure very very often 
is that it certainly hits the overload threshold. Like you've trained hard enough, no doubt about it. You may have not trained with enough volume. That kind of depends on how many sets you're doing. But the thing that it lets itself down on, I find most is the progressive part. So in terms of progressive overload, you need to be able to present an overload today, but also think about setting yourself up for next week. Where do you go once you pit failure? Um, that tends to be the kind of stumbling block. Um, we see it with powerlifters of, for a long, long time, trained with RPE, accumulated for a long period of time um, before going to failure and kind of bodybuilders. I think in the past, maybe some of like, they didn't call it anything, maybe like Arnie, maybe left a bit in the tank. I don't know. I don't know specifically, but it's more and more not been used as much, but I think it's, it's slowly creeping in with like Eric Helms doing lots more research in that area and obviously training people with it. And then obviously Mike has popularized more of the kind of RAR approach. So for those people like your client that has like the psyche or psychology of I can only train to failure, um, do you ever let them do that or do you kind of try and push them away like I suppose you have this client? And if you do let them do it, are there any things you kind of in terms of like exercises you you kind of advise them to avoid? So, yeah, I think like I said on the big compound lifts, there's certainly ones to avoid doing it on just because the the risk of injuring yourself is just way too high versus the reward. Whereas like if you are doing it on like calves or like biceps or like lateral raises like train to failure on those isn't going to be like the end of the world you're not going to you're very unlikely to injure yourself that even the fatigue that that's going to produce because it's such an isolation movement it's not really going to be systemically hugely fatiguing so if he was like that could be a way actually and you've given me an idea of in future i could sell him on maybe on the big lifts we leave three in reserve and then on your isolation lifts we can train those closer to failure because that's less risky and then um kind of yeah sell him on that sort of way um to move forward mm -hmm. that's actually something i've done in my own training i've actually i use an rir approach in most of my um primary lifts in in my uh, in my program anyway but a lot of the the kind of the fluff work the, the isolation stuff like accessory stuff i do just go to failure on a lot of the stuff yep. certainly i mean obviously it might depend on what, what week of my mesocycle i'm in but um like obviously if you're in your, your latter stages then going to failure is obviously not gonna be much of a problem because you, you're not you're not trying to overload for the following weeks but that's something i've definitely used and I think I, I think most of the part I found it enjoyable and successful. I think, I, I mean, I haven't put it this way. I haven't really noticed any huge negative impacts personally from doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can definitely see that being a logical way to kind of intertwine both. Yeah, and to be honest, it's not for me. It's more like I don't know. I think I started implementing it because it was just kind of like it felt like it was almost the only way I was progressing on some of those accessory stuff. Like okay. I, almost, I almost felt like I had to start get into failure because if not I was just repeating performance too much and even after deload and going again it's kind of like I don't know and I suppose a lot of that might be like a the, the problem a lot of people see um, in resistance training is that it takes such a long time for progression in some areas that you just don't even notice it and you kind of feel like you're just you know you're lifting the same weights week on week almost yeah I think it I think I might have heard Jeff Alberts who um, has obviously been training I don't know how many years now like 30 years or something ridiculous he's like 105 uh, or something isn't he he's yeah. still, and he's still stepping on stage shredded yeah. <laughs> um, but I think he said something like he's been using the same weight on dumbbell lateral raises for like the last 10 years yeah. or something really depressing like that yeah. so um, on some of those lifts you're completely right just progress just comes at a snail's pace yeah it's, fu it's funny you said lateral raises because that was exactly what was going from my head i was thinking god these shoulder raises like i think i've i've kept on about four kilograms for <laughs> forever <laughs> four, yeah. i'm not joking 
Don't know what you're Yeah, no. no. <laughs> um, it, okay. <laughs> In terms of no jokes aside, effective reps because obviously they're. I don't know. Did you see Greg Knuckles' recent article on it? Uh, I saw it and I opened it and I was like, I need to read this. this is uh, and it was quite long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was really long. That was, so. my, that was my thoughts. Um, okay, so at least there's, there's, um, I suppose like where, where I was going with that is I like the concept of effective reps. And obviously I've seen some of the stuff from Chris, Be- Chris Beardsley mainly to be honest. The only, the only person I've really other than, I think, did, who was it? Was it JP brought it on your podcast or someone talked he about talked, your podcast? He talked about pivotal reps which I think are very different to effective reps. I think that they may well be like past failure reps. I'm not sure. Right. Um, I'm not entirely sure. They're, they're a different thing. But I know James Krieg has talked about it. Um, obviously, um, it's kind of my rep in nature. So Borg kind of talked about it. I think Carl Jeannot might have come on the podcast podcast a long time ago and talked about it. And I recently asked Mike about it on like the last Q&A with Mike. So okay. it's come up a few times in different forms. But yeah, definitely Chris Beardley has been like a big kind of pusher of the idea, I think. Yeah. I think so. The reason I wanted to kind of get someone else's opinion on it is because it's really interesting to me. Um, because reading like Chris's stuff, if like me, you're not a researcher and, you know, you do your best to try and um, decipher some of the obviously the data and the research anyway, um, sometimes it can be really hard to kind of get like or not or disagree with the hypothesis of what like his might have been and it kind of logically makes sense as well some of the things he says around like the last maybe five reps of a set are the are basically the reps that you know the golden reps the reps that are actually having the most effect say and if you don't get to those points maybe you're not really stimulating anything to 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 grow um Mm -hmm. so i was kind of interested on your thoughts on on it i obviously have before um, or when we teed up this podcast, obviously Greg hadn't released that article, and obviously reading kind of his view on it is, I wouldn't say it's changed my mind, but obviously I would bow to his far far greater knowledge than mine on the concept or the you know the that area. So it's it's hard to think. And obviously, for people who don't know, and Greg's kind of tried to basically, um, I suppose, r- r- create a rebuttal against mm. the effective reps concept, say why he doesn't feel like that is a, a valid concept. Um, what are your thoughts, basically? Yeah, it's. I mean, I again, I bow to Greg's superior knowledge in that area. Like you, not a researcher, I just kind of take in various kind of information from the people I respect and think know what they're doing, and then apply it myself and see what kind of sticks. I think the the biggest thing that was elucidated to me from speaking to Mike about it was that I think in terms of effective reps, like the far. Less than five reps in reserve, that's kind of what we talked about there. Kind of, you need to be training with sets like that to be growing. So it kind of confirms that idea. The difficulty with kind of the effective reps is sometimes people think the reps before that are completely ineffective and they mean nothing, which isn't necessarily true. Um, and they can hypertrophy like novice trainees, they can be effective for them. Um, and then also the reps within those five they are different levels of effectiveness in terms of stimulative for hypertrophy. So like if you get kind of the fifth rep is less effective than like that one rep final, like that's more stimulative than that other rep. So kind of there's almost levels within there. And I think the effective reps concept, the thing I struggled with it is it's kind of based off only maybe a handful of studies. Whereas um, when we've talked about, um, or I think, Greg might have proposed it via someone else writing on his um, art, like on his website was like hard sets. So that's kind of like anything from like four 
or failure. Anything within that range is like a hard set. And that's how he would kind of define volume um, in terms of sets for hypertrophy rather than trying to count the number of like effective reps within each set. Um, and I think generally that is based off more studies um, and that's like a better resource or better tool as a coach at the moment than necessarily effective reps. That seemed to be kind of my main thoughts on it, but I haven't read Greg's article fully through and I do need to do that. It's like on my to-do list. Yeah. Um, but it is, yeah, it's a long one. I definitely recommend the readers to check out Greg's stuff because he's incredibly bright. Block out a couple of hours to, to get to it. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that maybe four, because I probably have to read it twice. So, <laughs> yeah. um, to, to be honest, some of the data points and the study reference you put in there, I think, Christ, I literally need to sit down in, in a in a room on my own and just go through this because there's no way I can concentrate on some of the stuff he's going through <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. Um, I th- like the point I just want to highlight to anyone listening is like you said, the, the effective reps concept saying like the last five reps are the most important. It does definitely insinuate that the ones before it doesn't matter. In fact, going obviously speaking about Dan Mack again, uh, I, I chat to him when we met up um, six, eight weeks ago, we were, we were talking about effective reps then. And I, and I made a joke about, ah, oh, you don't need to do the first 10 of that 15 set because it's there, the, obviously the first 10 don't matter. And it's kind of like, well, when you put it like that, you kind of, you have to, the, the first 10 counts for something, even if it is only getting you to that point of where, you know, you're starting to actually create enough stimulus for growth. Um, so they matter <laughs> basically yeah. regardless. Um, and I suppose like the, how do we put this to kind of like, information or thoughts into like practical stuff for people like because i guess like the effective reps concept you could argue then okay well the mechanism behind it whatever they are doesn't really matter for anyone listening because they probably don't need to necessarily know but if it is like you know five reps are the effective reps why not just do something heavy enough where you like your five rep max and only ever train that period you're not going to accumulate enough volume in here of course and you're more risk than you be training a heavy weight all the time. Mm. And if you're doing five reps, that's all that sets you have to do to accumulate enough volume for it to be, you know, for it to be effective. That's the thing you think about, isn't it? So different things. You couldn't, I suppose, but how tough is that going to be on your joints constantly doing five better maxes all the time? How quick before you die? <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, this is the thing: is you could you could argue, okay, well, depends how you're counting volume in air quotes in terms of some. I've definitely moved what you said, Steve. Is I've gone to the the hard sets in terms of measuring volume than where I used to just use tonnage because that was so right. easy to kind of work out where you just use your your reps times sets times weight. But I don't think that's really a very accurate view given on what your true volume and kind of how to then progress that. I don't think it's really very accurate. I think the hard sets is probably a better better view in, to, in the same way you said about Greg saying. Um, so you could argue, well, okay, I'll just add more sets and I'll just do loads of five reps or below and just do a ton more sets to increase my volume. But is the biggest problem purely down to like fatigue and injury risk then? Or are there any other merits for, for maybe kind of increasing your rep range to do the higher, like in air quotes, hypertrophy rep ranges? Or Yeah, I think um, you guys mentioned the good point there is like also the difference between the five um, effective reps there is they have different levels of obviously stimulus that I mentioned, but also fatigue. Uh, there's like that f- one that's five reps from fail is way less fatiguing than the one that is like one rep from failure. So it's kind of like trying to find, and I think on average, the sweet spots probably like two reps in reserve tends to be where you get lots of stimulus, not tons of fatigue. So it kind of hits both ends of the tail, but um, there's rationale for going also below and uh, over that as well, I think. Uh, and then, oh, no, go, go on. On. There you go. Oh, 
I was just going to say in terms of um, like using other repetition ranges, I think you can get a hell of a lot of growth from like focusing on the traditional hypertrophy repetition range. But I think it's becoming more and more, well, it's certainly known that you can grow from as much as like 30% of your one rep max. So using up to 30 repetitions and that opens up avenues for people maybe who are injured, who can use lighter weights then on certain exercises. Also, some exercises just aren't made for like heavy lifting. So like a dumbbell lateral raise for five reps is just, you don't want to be doing that. It's just not I'd, fun. I'd be doing uh, six kilos <laughs> instead of four. Six kilos, I can't yeah. do that. <laughs> uh, whereas like doing actually like delt work for 30 reps, like between 20 to 30 reps actually feels pretty damn good. Um, and it feels nice. So uh, there's also some thought that using those higher repetition ranges can hypertrophy maybe different muscle fibers so maybe we're hypertrophying some of the slow twitch muscle fibers that if you want to maximize your hypertrophy that might also be a good thing i think just having the variation there um, to allow certain areas of the muscle to somewhat kind of recover like daily undulating periodization maybe use some um, repetition ranges through the week so that you kind of hit some areas and then hit some other areas and you see a good kind of um, response from that and it allows some areas to heal up and yeah the heavy weights just beat up your joints a hell of a lot more than the lighter ones so it kind of to me it doesn't make sense to continue to train long term like that um, I think short term you can definitely do like dedicated phases to maybe lifting heavy uh, but for long term I think it makes sense to utilize the whole range I think a point that I'd probably have thought of and like to maybe give um, some, like you said, the point you made around some exercise being kind of not really appropriate for certain rep ranges. I also think that for some exercises, people struggle with form, in air quotes, my muscle connection and stuff at heavier weights because of maybe you know, you know, it might be like too heavy axle loading or it might be um, just particular you know fatigue in in areas or joints where they just they're not they're not then you know at the start of the, the call we talked about form they're kind of not hitting that that true honest form because they're trying to lift too heavy for that type of exercise even if it's just only for that moment in time because they're too fatigued or whatever else and some people might benefit them more from having a higher rep range because they can just get a far better connection and far better form based on i mean a, a, an example that i often use people is the shoulder raise or it might be a lot of pulling movements um sort of come some of the lighter pulling movements what you might do um for like know, like single joint movements for back say if you like trying to go too heavy, some people just cannot feel it and cannot get any decent almost stimulus out of it. And I feel like if people worry so much about effective reps and they were thinking, well, okay, I'm going to try and focus on the reps that matter, um, they probably not really stimulate them to be called effective reps because they, you know, they they wouldn't have a, a good enough or correct form. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think there's just, especially like like you said, with rowing movements, and it's so easy to get momentum there and whereas when you kind of lighten it up you hit a higher repetition range you can maybe like fully protract fully retract really get a squeeze and like actually feel the muscle working and um my muscle connection has been shown to actually be like not just the bros and it's like brad has done research on that brad schoenfeld and shown that my muscle connection matters and in effect it's kind of like technique in many ways uh, so yeah i agree i think from that standpoint as well it makes good sense um I think I don't know if we've covered everything we want to talk about. I'm just trying to look, make sure I haven't missed anything. We got um, anything you think we've missed, or, or in terms of kind of like maybe the the practical side. I think you you did obviously your your talk about how you can kind of apply RER um, and the volume landmarks to people. Obviously, I think are really good for people to hear because I think that for, for for either newbies or kind of maybe intermediates that don't really know how to kind of imply, um, 
applied progression that's a really good model and reasonably simplistic the volume landmarks yeah. aren't easy are they certainly when you're trying to figure out your volume landmarks that's not so easy um just takes a lot of time experiment is that right would you say yeah it's just knowing yourself and kind of being able to realize kind of what recovery is and how you're feeling and everything like that but i think once you've done it a few times it can be like you kind of just auto regulate it that's essentially what it is like auto regulating your volume a little bit cool I think we covered everything. Johnny, you got anything else you want to ask? Uh, do you think most general public, I'm not talking like physique and body, but I'm saying like, if you're set on stage, your class is relatively hardcore, so you probably understand where failure is. Do you think most general trainers even know where failure is for them? Because I look around my gym, and there's a few big lumpers, thinking you're training like 10 reps from failure up here. And you're putting the weight down. I mean, damn you for being like that and being that big. But you look, you notice, you think, well, you're doing like eight from failure. You just rep and fun, just chuck it. I was like, well, do you think a lot of people understand where true failure is? Yeah, I think the majority of the people in the gym don't have a clue, even like what they don't even really understand it. They don't even, it's not even on their radar. They're just kind of lifting until maybe it burns which isn't failure, like that doesn't count. If it just burns, that's not enough. Like some exercises just feel that way or as soon as it feels uncomfortable or is a stretch, they just end up stopping um, or they go completely the other way and they're like getting their mate to like assist them on the bicep curl and it's like you haven't even done one rep yourself. Uh, it's, it's quite unfortunate and it's very rare actually to see people with good technique even. Like it's just a sad case that a lot of people don't even understand that lifting weights needs to be hard um, and like progressive and that's why I think a lot of guys especially guys I always think it's mostly guys girls probably find this as well now as they get more into the weightlifting but they end up getting into the gym they get their kind of newbie gains because you don't really need to work very hard to get those and then they just stall and they don't really see anything they don't understand why and a lot of the time it is because they don't train that hard and they also don't train with good technique so the muscles don't even get like hit very hard so yeah definitely agree that's probably what leads people down the wrong path or what's the magic thing yeah or what what's this what's a special routine or this or steroids probably and that's what ends up actually it is just working hard having correct form and being progressive because my girlfriend goes to the gym and obviously I said do you do track what are you doing no I said how do you know you're progressing then um um what do you don't do said just just write down what are you doing one week and then Try and beat them next week. She goes, oh, is it? All right, then. I'll try it out. It's like, well, most people like it. And they like, oh, do you log book? No. Yeah. It was, a, it was a question of on a, on a Facebook group on it, obviously full of trainers, some big lumps, bodybuilders, some just general pop. And they, some guy asked, quite a big guy, um, what do you all do? Do you train to feel or do you log book your session? How, how can you train to feel? How do you know what you've done last week? So often if you looked at a log and gone, Jesus Christ, did I really do 10 reps of that weight last week? Because you can't anticipate how tired you're going to be next week. And you think, oh, I can't do that much. You're never going to know. And I find that happens a lot. I go in, I go in and feel it. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to work for you. Yeah, so. I find, I, I think it was said really well on, um, like I think Jordan and Mike were talking about it, about logbooking and how important that is. And it's just how like, it's when you get to a certain level of advancement, it's just the body doesn't really want to 
push that hard. So you'll kind of trick yourself into thinking something feels hard, but you need to know because you actually need to progressively overload. And if you don't know that, it's very easy just to go in there and go through the motions, like you said, and not really progress. That's what we said. I can't Was it a Facebook Live we did, Johnny, or one of the podcasts? I can't remember exactly what I said. I said it gets to a point where if you're not logbooking, you, the psychology doesn't get taken into account when you're just going to the gym, train as hard as you can. Because you're going to think, if I, if I just train hard and I get better, then surely I'll just I'll be training, I'll be progressively overloading every week because I'll be getting better and I'll be training as hard as I can. So like almost logically, naturally, it'll just happen. So, well, that doesn't take into account the psychology of it, that some days you go in, you can't believe what you actually lifted last week. And if you don't know you lifted that last week, you just go in and train less because you'd be like, well, oh, this feels really hard today, so this must be the max I can train. And it's like, well, that's because the psychology is as much of an influence when you kind of get to that level or a level as it is a lot of the other stuff. Yeah. Agreed. Um, cool. Right. Well, I'll, I'll wrap up here, mate, because I don't want to take up. You've already been so generous to your time already. Do you want to plug all your stuff? So I know you've obviously got a seminar coming up. Um, so I don't know if you want to plug that and anything else that's going on. Cool. Yeah. No, thank you so much for having me on again. It's always good to chat. And we have um, Cliff Wilson. So if you are into this bodybuilding lark, then you probably know Cliff Wilson. And if you don't, then shame on you and you should come and see Cliff. Um, he's going to be here at the end of uh, this month, so September. I forget the date. I think it's the 28th. I think he's here. Um, but he's going to be near Houston Station. So we're at the Wesley Hotel, which is literally right by Houston Station. So if people can get to Houston really easily hopefully they can it's in London um, easy to get to come along uh, we have plenty of space for more people to come uh, apart from that how'd they buy have, how'd they, how'd they buy, they buy sorry <laughs> <laughs> probably tell them so you can find the tickets and everything about like our podcast any articles any of our coaching at revivestronger.com you can find it all over there um, we have like a shopping area so you'll be able to get a ticket there apologies <laughs> Thanks like, for reminding me. No, it's all right. It's like doing a massive... Good salesman. <laughs> yeah, it's like you, you get you pay one of these FitPro marketers to do all your marketing for you and then you forget to actually get the call to action at the bottom. <laughs> so, yeah, and then I think that'll be the only seminar we have left this year and we will have hopefully the biggest seminar ever next year. Um, we normally bring over like RP and some of the gang. Hopefully we'll have a, a bit more of the gang this year, next year, sorry. <laughs> this time next year. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll look forward to that. I haven't got to any of yours yet, ashamedly. So um, I think obviously the last one we were going to go to, the one when RP came over, but obviously you're on Dan Stag do, so I couldn't go. So yeah. disappointing. But I'll make sure we get we do get to it. Buddy Dan. Yeah. He, um, honestly, that guy, he just seems to ruin my life at most occasions. He's not trolling <laughs> me on in, on the internet. He's um, obviously ruining me or stopping me going to obviously these types of events. So hopefully, though, we'll... we'll I mean, I don't know. Obviously, you said before the call about the MNU one. Hope you'll catch up with the MNU event if you uh, can get to it. Um, anything else? No, I think that wraps it up on my end. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. And I guess if people want to talk to me directly at all, and where I put out most of my stuff, at least it's Instagram. So Revive Stronger on Instagram is my personal one, and I try to get back to most people that message me um, and yeah, share my kind of journey there. So that'd be cool. Cool. No, I definitely recommend everyone check it out, um, especially if you're into the physique realm, like you say, because uh, it's cool to watch someone like you, who's arguably more dedicated than the most people, but it is acts acts as like really good inspiration for people. Because I'll be honest, it's like the stuff you put out is obviously complicated, but you put it in a nice, simple way, which I think a lot of people will, will enjoy and be able to then take some use from, rather than maybe 
you know, we joked about Mike having been the king of analogies and stuff. Obviously, I guess it's someone that you look up to and, and obviously take a lot from him, but you do stuff in a very similar way and that makes stuff really easy to use for people and, and, and applicable, basically. So I definitely recommend people check you out. I also want to do one what No worries. I want to do one other thing, actually. Um, shout out to one of your clients, another client, Jess, who oh, yeah, is now interning with you guys. Yeah. But can she stop sending me pictures of donuts almost every day so if you can if you can just i'm gonna tell her that, off as well that's yeah, not good if you can mention, i'll be honest i did make a joke a couple of weeks back where i said i think you might be have a bit, little bit of food focus which she only admit yeah maybe i have which i guess in in her position at the minute very deep into prep i can un- understand a bit but she keeps sending me pictures of donuts from australia like worst thing about it is they're all australians so i can't even get them so stop sending them to me um yeah that's i thought hilarious. i'd mention that i thought i'd stitch her up a bit but no, well, big thank you, mate. Um, obviously, hopefully, we'll catch up soon then. Totally. Yeah, great, thank you very much. Do, do, do John... the podcast, by the way. Oh, well, yeah, oh. hopefully. Um, this is normally where you say Tulu, mate. So I say it. Tulu. Thanks for listening to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. We'll speak to you all next week. <laughs>